I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16, and we'll be reading from verses 12 through 15. That's on page 1069 in your Sanctuary Bible. Just a few words of introduction about this passage. First, uh, just to preface it a little bit about today in our church calendar. Today, if you look on the front of your bulletin, it says today is Holy Trinity Sunday. And we have, this is part of our church year. We have other days that commemorate events like Pentecost, which was last Sunday, the coming of the Holy Spirit to the disciples, Easter, Christmas, you get it. These are, these are commemorations of events. Today is the only Sunday in the church calendar that is dedicated to a doctrine, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. So get ready for an extremely boring day. No, I'm kidding. Hopefully not. But get ready because this is a little different. This is a, this is a Sunday that's set aside for us to celebrate this very interesting aspect of our God and his nature, that he is a triune God. He is three in one in a way that we can't even understand. And there's all sorts of ways of trying to visualize it, like ice cubes and hot water and things like that. And, and all of those just give one tiny glimpse of it, but there's nobody in this world who can describe it in its fullness in one setting. That's not going to happen until we get to heaven and we receive that from the Lord. So I'm not, today we're not going to try to explain the grand scope of the Trinity. That's impossible. Uh, we're just going to look at one little corner of it, one tiny little aspect of it as revealed in this passage from John chapter, 12, uh, John chapter 16. A little word about this passage then. This passage in John 16 takes place in the middle of what is one of the biggest slowdowns in all of Scripture. And by slowdown, I mean that the action comes to a crawl and the dialogue gets really intense. If you were thinking about a movie, some parts are all action, a lot of movement, and other parts are a lot of dialogue and a lot of, of expansion of time. If you look at the other Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark, it's all action right from the get-go. Jesus is out there being active and doing things. One verse, he's in this one town, and the next verse, he's in another town, and he's off doing something, healing, preaching, all sorts of things. A lot of the time there is very compressed. It's just moving along. But here in John... We're in the middle here in chapter 16 of an extreme slowdown. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of John, and it has 21 chapters. Five whole chapters cover the span of just a few hours in the life of Jesus. From, from chapter 13 where they begin the Last Supper and Jesus washes his disciples' feet to the next stages where Jesus gives some instructions to them. He tells them about the vine and the branches and some of those other things. And then in chapter 16, he starts to say goodbye to them. This is in the middle of what's known as the farewell discourse. He's, it's a very long goodbye to his disciples. And finally, chapter 17, which is a prayer that he prays over the disciples at that meal. It's called the high priestly prayer. Five chapters in John out of 21 centered on just a couple of hours of time between Jesus and his disciples. And that's where we're going to pick up. So with that introduction, uh, let's go to our reading. John chapter 16, verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. 
He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to imagine with me that you are now, in this moment, able to be transported back in time to the time of Jesus, specifically to the time when he first called his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And that also you could be transported in location to that place and that you could be present with all of them while they're talking and doing these things. And that you could observe the disciples and Jesus, that you could somehow understand what they were thinking and, and comprehending in that moment, and that you could do all this without being observed yourself. In other words, that you would have the vantage point of one of the gospel writers, taking in everything that happens. Can you do that with me? Go back in time, move, away, move over in space to the Sea of Galilee. You're with the disciples. They're, they're fishing. Jesus walks up and he says, drop your nets. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Come follow me. And you look at the disciples and they're a little puzzled. And they're like, who is this person? He seems very charismatic. Uh, I guess we've heard a little bit about him. I guess we have nothing better to do right now than actually do that. So they drop their nets and they follow him. And they start going around with him and listening to him. They come to Matthew, the tax collector, and Jesus tells him to leave what he's doing and come along. And so he leaves his table where he's collecting taxes and he just drops that whole life and he starts going around with Jesus. And you start to listen as Jesus says things. You start to become part of those conversations. And you start to listen as Jesus preaches. And you follow him and the disciples up to the top of this mountain and Jesus starts to preach up there. And you hear the whole Sermon on the Mount firsthand. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. And you take it in with the disciples and you're watching the disciples and they're, they're slowly beginning to process this, that this is something different. This is a different preacher than all the rest. You go around with Jesus some more and, and he starts to do some amazing things. He starts to heal people. Leprosy. He helps people walk who are lame. He gives sight to people who are blind. And this is pretty amazing. Those are some really great miracles. But then the bigger miracles come. He starts to raise people from the dead. That's all the physical stuff. But there's some spiritual miracles too. He starts to cast demons out of people who have been driven crazy by them. And they are returned to their right mind. And there's this great spiritual power that accompanies you everywhere you go with Jesus. And you start to see in the disciples' eyes that they're recognizing who Jesus is. Jesus speaks over and over and over again about himself going to the cross, dying, laying down his life only to have it then be taken up again. And you watch as the disciples say, I don't quite get that. That's a little too hard for us to understand. How can, that, how can anyone do that? But they keep following him. And then more miracles such as feeding thousands of people with just a little bit of food, telling the weather what to do, and it does it. This is all great stuff. And you're like, oh, something amazing is happening here. 
Then Jesus starts telling these parables. Really rich stories that are crazy and how, are full of reversals, yet they're, they're anchored in everyday things and in, in, everything, in everyday life that you can really grasp. And sometimes Jesus explains them and, and the disciples go, oh yeah, I get it now. But sometimes Jesus doesn't explain them. He just leaves them hanging there. And you're with the disciples as they sit for days on end going, what did that mean? I still don't get that parable. I'm still thinking about it. You watch as Jesus has these confrontations with religious authorities. He calls them on their hypocrisy, but he also loves them. He's hoping that they'll come around. He sets his face resolutely for Jerusalem, and he marches up the really steep hill from Jericho to Jerusalem, spends the night, raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, goes into the city and marches straight to the temple, and he invades it. He claims it as his own. He gets angry, and you see this flash of righteous anger in him, and you're amazed. You keep seeing these new sides of Jesus every time you go somewhere, every time you do something new. You, the, the picture just gets deeper and more complex and more full, and you, you start to get it. After you're in Jerusalem for four days, you go up to the upper room. And you're amazed because Jesus takes off almost all of his clothes. And he goes around and he washes the feet of all the disciples. And you begin to understand what he meant by him laying down his life and serving. And you remember that you'd been watching the disciples have arguments about, amongst themselves about who was the greatest. And Jesus rebukes them. And he uses an event like this to remind them that true greatness comes from serving, from laying down your honor, laying down your life. And he shows them how. And then he teaches at this dinner. And time begins to almost stand still. And you pick up right here in John chapter 16. And Jesus is now saying goodbye. And this is what he says. He says, I am out of time. I'm out of time. I've got to go. Tonight, I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. Tomorrow, I'm going to be crucified. A few days after that, I'm going to be raised again. Don't forget that that's going to happen, although they will. But tonight, I'm running out of time. I am saying goodbye to you. Because after this, you're not really going to see me the same way again. We're not going to have this opportunity for me to teach you in quite the same way anymore. Our days of wandering the countryside together, teaching, preaching, healing, performing miracles, having confrontations with people, that's at an end. This is, a, this is a breaking point in time. I'm saying goodbye to you now. And what I have to say is this, is that there is a whole lot more that I need to tell you. There's a whole lot more that you need to know that's important for you to know. But I can't tell it to you now. And I can't tell it to you now because you cannot bear it. You can't handle it. You can't handle the truth. You should imagine Tom Cruise saying that, but don't imagine Tom Cruise saying that because Jesus says it a whole lot better. You can't handle the truth. The Greek word there, to bear something, is perfectly translated into English when we think of it as a physical act. It's used to describe holding something up physically, something that has weight. So right now, my legs are bearing the rest of my body. If you look out here, 
Kind of hard to tell through all the scaffolding, but there's a brick wall. You all see the brick wall, right? On top of the brick wall is a big brown beam. Does everybody see that? It's there. That beam is holding up some other beams that are resting on top of it that kind of go in this direction. Well, we had to replace that beam recently because it could not bear all the weight on top of it. It has started to rot over the years. In fact, the inside of it, I, w I went looking for it. It's gone. Uh, it was in the empty lot for a while as an example. It looked like the kind of thing you'd see on the forest floor, a decaying tree that had been there for 30 years. That's what it looked like. And it was not able to bear all that weight. And so the, the, if you remember, the front of the church was starting to droop. Remember that? We had a frown on the front of the church. We had a frowny church. Frowny. It was sad. Luckily, and it's been replaced with a new beam, one that's not rotten, one that we're going to take really good care of. We're going to paint it. We're going to keep track of it, right? And now the, the church isn't frowny anymore. It's not happy either. It's just straight. It's flat. It's a good Swedish church. Not too excited, not too, you know. It's just, I can say that because I'm Swedish, all right? It's, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good even keel church, all right? Because that beam can now bear what's laid on it. Jesus says to his disciples, at this point in time, I have a lot more to tell you, but you cannot bear it. It will be too heavy for you to hold. That's hard. Does he not have faith in his disciples? No, he's realistic about his disciples. He knows that they're only ready for what they're ready for when they're ready for it. But that's not the end of the story. Thank goodness. That's not the end. What he says next is really part of what the whole Trinity is about. He says, somebody else is going to tell you all these things. Not me, somebody else. At a time when you can bear it. At just the right time. And that person is the Spirit. Earlier in the John's Gospel, Jesus introduces them to the concept of the Spirit by calling him the parakletos or the paraclete. This is a Greek word that means friend, counselor, companion. Um, the, way, uh, the way this is, word is this, uh, translated in uh, Central African Republic in the language they speak there, and I forget it there, the name of that language is that someone who falls down next to you. This idea is that you're walking down the trail and you trip and you fall. A paraclete is somebody who falls down next to you and helps you get up again. Sometimes the word is guide, counselor. This is the word that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit will come and guide you into all truth. He will come and tell you these things that you cannot bear right now. Now, Zach preached last week about Pentecost. That's exactly when that happened. And it continued to happen after that. The Spirit began to tell people things that they, they didn't know and couldn't bear yet until that moment. Then Jesus goes on to describe a little bit about how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all work together. And that's why this text was chosen for this day. It says like this, and this is, it's really as simple as this, and this is all the detail we need to go into. It looks like this. It's that the Father and the Son are so intimately connected to each other if you have children, you understand how intimately connected you are to your children. But the Father and Son in heaven are so intimately connected to each other that everything that the Father has, the Son has as well. 
Everything that the Father has, the Son has as well. They share everything. Particularly, they share the truth. The truth about everything. The truth about the universe. The truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. They are so intimately connected that they share everything. The Spirit's job is to take from them and give to the disciples. So that's the Trinity right there. If you want a very short and just one small little window into the Trinity, because there's a whole scope of other things you could say about the Trinity, not just water and ice, but one little picture of the Trinity is this. The Father and Son are so intimately connected that everything they have, they have in common. And the Spirit's job is to take from that and give to Jesus' followers at a time when they can bear it. That's the Spirit's job. The Spirit is this active part of the Trinity. The Spirit is the one that goes and does things. And if you look in your text here, in just a few verses, there's all these verbs that describe the work of the Spirit. Guide, speak, tell, bring, make. There's another one in there somewhere, and I just lost it. But there's six verbs that describe the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is active. It does things. One of the problems I think we have, especially as Protestants, is we don't really have an appetite for mysterious things. We don't really have an appetite for things that we can't quite grasp or quantify um, mathematically or scientifically, and the Spirit is certainly one of those things. We don't know. You know, even, even Jesus describes the Spirit. It says, it blows where it wants to, when it wants to. You can't control it. It just does what it wants, when it wants. Well, that's mysterious. And there's this mystery about the Spirit that Protestants have never gotten totally comfortable with. I hope we can. I really do. Because the Spirit is so active in our lives at all times, we don't even really realize it. We don't celebrate it as much as I wish we would. And I'm speaking to myself right now, okay? I want to be more in tune to the Spirit's work. But basically, when information about God when information about Jesus Christ is being transmitted from one person to another, the Spirit is active in that moment and giving that information at the the level that that person can bear. So when you're talking to somebody about Jesus, the Spirit is enabling you to do that. And for the person listening, the Spirit is enabling them to hear it. The Spirit is at work on both ends of that equation. It's wonderful. It's, the Spirit is alive and active. It's doing things. When the Word of God is preached, the Spirit is active in the preacher and in the listener. And it's not just preachers, but it's when one person says it to another. It's, there's no monopoly on that at all. When um, you read the Scriptures by yourself, and the Word comes off the page and into your heart, and you comprehend it, and you internalize it, the Spirit is active. The Spirit was active in the writing of that word centuries ago. The Spirit's active in the moment you open the Bible and crack it open and read it line by line and take it in. The Spirit's active, helping you understand it to the level that you can bear. We heard about Yvonne Olivier. And I heard, and I I hope I'm right, that she became a Christian before her mother became a Christian. And that she had a hand in telling her mother about the Christian faith. Now, if I'm wrong about that, I'd want to be corrected. 
But when Yvonne was telling her mother about Jesus, the Spirit was at work. And when her mom was hearing it, the Spirit was at work. And the Spirit does it at a time when people can bear it. And sometimes that could make sense for us of why it takes some people so long to come to the Lord. Why a child would come to the Lord before a parent. Because for whatever reason, the Spirit moved when the Spirit moved because the Spirit knew when somebody could bear the truth that they couldn't bear before then. There's not much more to say about this. Um, This is actually going to be one of the shorter sermons you've ever heard from me. It's good enough to stop there except for this. I think a great prayer for us would be to ask God to help us to bear more than we think we can bear. I think we have a sense for how much of the truth we can bear. I guess, I'm I'm thinking perhaps the Spirit knows that we can bear more than we think we can bear. That word for bear, in this case using to describe bear the truth, is the same word that Jesus uses about bearing the cross, bearing hardship, bearing difficulties for life in the kingdom. I'm wondering if we could pray to God that he would take our old rotten beams and send them out to the field and replace them with new, freshly cut, freshly painted beams that will bear the truth of what God has for us so that we could live into that truth. That's going to be my prayer. I'm going to pray that right now. And I invite you, if you are hearing those words as I pray, if you want to pray them too, pray them silently in your own heart as an invitation to the Spirit to increase your ability to bear the truth that comes from the Father and the Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Creator God, Father of the universe, Jesus Christ, Son, Incarnate Lord, Holy Spirit, Counselor, Friend, Guide, and Paraclete, we pray to you, one God, three persons, please come into our lives and find those areas of us that aren't bearing the load and replace them. Increase our ability to bear your truth so that we can be guided by your spirit into even more truth. We ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.